0: We're going to be uh, starting that chapter today, and really, not only are we literally starting a new chapter in your uh, Bibles, but we're also kind of at a hinge point in the story of Acts. So today begins kind of a new era, if you will, in the history of the church. Now one of the, the patterns of this book, as written by the Apostle Luke, uh, who also wrote Luke, is that he keeps switching between, right now he keeps switching between scenes and of the church and its witness to sort of the outside general world uh, there in Jerusalem, and then scenes of the church and its sort of internal relational dynamics that are going on. And so if you just think about chapter five that we just came through, uh, two weeks ago I covered the internal sort of relational dynamics of Ananias and Sapphira and their judgment. And then last week Stephen helped us to see the importance of understanding, not the Stephen that's mentioned in Acts today, but the Stephen right over there. He helped us to uh, see the importance uh, and understand uh, preaching the good news of Jesus leads to potential persecution, uh, and, and we're witnesses to Jesus in the world out there in our communities. Uh, so this week, I, I was uh, putting the sermon online, and I texted Stephen and said, Hey, do you have a title? And uh, he and I are kind of on the same lines. We don't, I don't tend to think of a title for my sermon until after it's kind of done. And I texted him, I think probably while he was texting me back, I said, How about something like, Break the huddle. And as my text went, his came in and said, break the huddle. And I was like, oh, this is weird, right? Twilight Zone, Holy Spirit stuff going on. So if you didn't see that, if you weren't here, go back and watch that. It's on YouTube. It's on our Facebook page and stuff. So you can check that out. Uh, But there was a sports metaphor for those of you that enjoy that kind of thing. So that's where we were last week, seeing how um, the, the witness of the church can lead to opposition and persecution. Uh, But what's interesting is that starting this week, um, we're going to kind of change scenes again and go back to sort of internal relational dynamics again in the church, this time in a group of people. Uh, But the interesting thing is that this week, there's a link that binds the scene today and the scene we're going to see next week together, and that is uh, Stephen, uh, the the one in the Bible. And so the internal conflict we're going to see today in the church is going to be resolved by the commissioning of a second group of leaders within the church. Uh, we would call them deacons. Uh, that term deacon comes from the Greek word that basically means table servant. And that's what they were. And so we see the commissioning of this second group of leaders in the church. Stephen's part of that group. Uh, but then in the next section, we're going to see his witness and his subsequent martyrdom, if you know the story. And so this movement of focus from a group of people to a specific Person, as we see here, is an example uh, of what is called biological particularization in literary terms. I've been practicing that all week. (laughs) Biological particularization, okay? That's what it's called sort of in the world of literature. Uh, And and so, also in this focus in the book of Acts is going to be Philip, who we'll see, uh, we'll get to after Stephen in a couple of weeks. But what we know from reading Acts so far is that this is not the first internal conflict, right? We mentioned it already. Again, we saw. Ananias and Sapphira and the resolution to that sort of interpersonal conflict between them and the church and the Holy Spirit. And that was their judgment. And one of the things I want to remind you of that, uh, whenever we read that story, we tend to think, man, God judged them so harsh. They died but the thing that helps me to, to, to kind of resolve that sort of dissonance in my mind is to remember that they, they were going to die anyway. And so God didn't do anything to them that they didn't uh, already have coming upon them. It's just that it happened in a timeline that was sooner. And so the conflict, uh, that conflict is resolved by judgment. And then the one we're going to get into today are different in that Ananias and Sapphira, it's two individuals but today's conflict centers on two groups or factions inside of the church. And, it, and those two, this conflict today sort of threatens a couple of things. And we'll, we'll hit this theme a few times. The first thing is that we see that this conflict has the potential to divide the church community. That that would be devastating to the external witness of the church, right? What did Jesus say? The, the world will know you're my disciples by how you love one another. So, so this would be devastating. On a human level, we, we know this is true, right? Nobody wants to join a community where there's strife. N- nobody wants that. So think about it at your job, maybe your school. Who, who wants to join like a, an employment team of people who already don't like each other? Not me, right? Or, or you see this if you follow team sports, right? When the locker room isn't unified, the team is generally not going to play well in, in most sports, For the early church, this division actually threatens the entire life of the church. It's a serious threat. But also, this conflict calls into question the leadership of the church, the integrity of the apostles. And so this has to be lovingly dealt with because, again, this would mean that the witness of the church is going to be at risk to the outside world. So I'm going to read the text for us, and then I will pray And we can dig in. And I already warned Children's Church, but because of this stuff going on, I might be a little shorter today. So you might get to lunch a little quicker. All right? Let me read from Acts chapter 6. I'm just going to read the first seven verses. Acts 6, starting in verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you again for this record of our heritage of your church. We thank you that we're able to take this book and read it and see the ways that you have set this this family up to work. And so today, Lord, we ask that you help us to see what you want us to see from your word. And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right. Now, the first thing I just want to point out to you is the similarity between verses one and verse seven. Look at this. Verse one. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, and then verse seven, and the word of God continued to increase, and what? The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, that's a whole other thing we could talk about, how amazing that is, that the priests were even being converted. But Luke is sort of, if you imagine a a set of books and the bookends, he's sort of setting up bookends here where numerical increase is both the, the setup of this conflict, and it's also what happens after the resolution of the conflict. So numerical increase in a church is not a guarantee of unity. So, so you'll notice in verse 1 and in verse 7, numerical increase is mentioned. So, so let's look at the setup of this, uh, of the issue we see here in chapter 6, verse 1. So what, what we see is that this problem, this issue, it, it has really positive circumstances sort of at its root, right? We, we see that this is happening because there's an increase in number of the total number of disciples of Jesus. So remember, if you're, if you're not familiar with the Bible and you're like, I thought disciples were those guys from the Gospels, you're right. But here, disciples is referring not just to the 12, like in the Gospels, but it's referring to everybody who's following Jesus. Like, if you follow Jesus, you're a disciple of Jesus. And so it's referring to everybody who is a part of the church here in Jerusalem. So as we keep seeing in Acts the number of people who are having their lives just radically transformed and changed by Jesus and who are now following his life and teaching as disciples that number is increasing and we know from acts 2 and we know from acts 5 that this is god's hand this is not this is not a false thing this is a good thing but we also see here in acts 6 that this issue is arising because the apostles And there I mean specifically the ones called by Jesus out of his followers who are leading the church. The apostles in this spot are basically overworked through fulfilling their calling of preaching and teaching, but also serving tables. Now, now if we were to take a peek back back at Acts 4.35, what you'd see is that serving tables here just means distribution of things to those who are in need. Distribution to the poor is what it means. And again, this is a good thing that is what God wants, right? This is not that they're doing a bad thing, they're doing a good thing. Now, if you read this text carefully, though, what you notice is that the the apostles actually have been participating in this distribution to the poor. I, I remember as a boy, the first time I encountered this text, thinking, man, those guys are jerks. They won't serve tables right? And, and if you read this too quickly without care, you, you can get that conclusion as well. And so they've actually been uh, participating in the distribution to the poor, but now they've reached the point where they can't keep up with the demands because of the increase in number. And so there's a lesson for the, in this for a church family to consider. And I think it's this, right? Growth numerically is always going to bring challenges. It's always going to bring challenges. We're getting a little taste of that right now in our own church family, we're growing a little bit, and there's just things that are challenging for us. Where we, uh, we, There are places where more of us have opportunity to jump in and serve, as we're going to see here in Acts. So let's keep going. What we see happening, though, is, that, is what always happens when we assume the worst from one another. And that's kind of what you see going on here. We, we assume the worst from one another. We allow our worldly assumptions to overtake the pursuit of real Christian community. That's always a battle for us. The end of verse two says it. Listen, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, the word complaint there is really important. It's a word that means complaining, grumbling, murmuring, okay? Uh, So understanding the importance of this, uh, the, the, the Hellenists here, they have a legitimate issue. They have a legitimate issue. They're not bringing up something that's not an issue. Their widows are not being taken care of properly, but what they're doing is actually sort of insinuating and making an accusation against the character of the Hebrews and and kind of specifically the apostles because they have a need that's not being met. So understand how devastating this kind of attitude can be in the life of a church, right? When people start to grumble against one another, it can split the community. And that's the danger here. This is a serious threat. So, so these Hellenists are Greek speaking Jews, if you don't know what that word means. And the widows obviously are without husbands. They are likely women who maybe have come back to Jerusalem from the Greek speaking lands where they've been living while their husbands were alive. And so, These women are actually, if you remember back to our study in the book of Ruth, these women are actually in a similar situation as maybe Ruth and Naomi would have been when they come back. Uh, And so these Hellenists would even have had their own synagogues in Jerusalem. And later on in Acts, we're going to see that there is at best tension and at worst, like we see here, contention between the Hellenists and the Hebrews in the church in Jerusalem. So everybody says we should go back to the early church. Well, it kind of feels familiar, doesn't it? We've got stuff going on where people are fighting with each other. That's just kind of the way it is. But the author Luke here, what's interesting, he doesn't actually place blame on anybody for the fact that they're not getting the distribution. He doesn't say whose fault it is. In fact, the, the translation we read could actually be better uh, specifically when it comes to the end of verse 1. Listen, listen again. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. But the word because could actually be better translated as that. And some of your translations might have it. So something more like they murmured against the Hebrews that their widows were being neglected. And so these Hellenists and the the Hebrews have a ton of differences that are now rubbing up against each other in this newly formed church family, right? Right? We read in the early part of Acts, there were people from all over the place who were converted and became part of the church. So there's language differences, cultural differences, all kinds of differences. And what happens when that's the case? People tend to assume the worst motives out of one another when we don't understand one another. Now, who's right here? Well, Luke doesn't actually tell us. He doesn't actually tell us who is in the wrong for them not getting what they need. We don't know why these widows are being overlooked. Is it deliberate? Is it an accident? Is there others who are also being overlooked that we just don't hear a complaint from in the scriptures? We don't know. But what the apostles do know is that this kind of situation cannot be left alone. We can't leave it alone. There is now in the church a spirit of division, and this is something that has to be dealt with. Now, I remember serving at a church previous to this one. I was in an elder meeting, and we were talking about a certain family who had had this issue, and they had expressed to one of the elders that they didn't trust the elders. And a couple of the elders reacted by kind of saying, well, they need to learn how to trust leadership. And one of the older, wiser elders said, you might be right about that, but the question we should be asking is, why don't they trust us? What's going on that, that they don't trust the leadership? Now, there, there's some interesting parallels happening here between our story in Acts 6 and what happens in the Old Testament with Moses and God's people. If that term murmuring sounds familiar to you, uh, that means you've heard the story of Moses and the people of Israel the wilderness. And if you're like me, you've also heard that one famous clip of a John Piper sermon where he says murmur, murmur, murmur over and over, and it's just in my head now. (laughs) But that's the same same kind of idea as what's happening to Moses in the Old Testament. There's a couple of parallels, right? One, they both involve the distribution of food. But the second parallel is the one that's really important for unity, both in the murmuring of God's people against Moses In the Old Testament and in the murmuring here in Acts, there is a spirit of division that ends up being specifically aimed at the leadership of the people of God. This is how one commentator said it. The terms for this murmuring suggest an ill-tempered, festering, deep dissatisfaction that prefers grumbling and poisonous speech to proper confrontation and resolution. Man, I read that and was like, I am so guilty of that sometimes. I find that spirit in my heart. I prefer grumbling and poison, even just grumbling amongst myself and poisonous speech to my own heart. I prefer that to actually going and speaking to the person. I prefer that to proper confrontation and resolution, even though I know that the gospel tells us that reconciliation is the thing. That's what we're about. He continues, the allusion to Moses suggests that it involved, at least to some extent, a challenge to the God-ordained authorities, and that is an extremely serious threat to the unity and the integrity of the church. So now at this point, although we don't know who is wrong, who's in the wrong for how this situation happened, we do know, based on Luke's language, that this grumbling and those who are doing it is wrong. We know that that part is Wrong. So now what follows is an example of good leadership and good conflict resolution. So the the first thing to notice is that the resolution to the conflict involves everybody who's affected by the conflict, which in this case is the entire church. We see the apostles asking the entire community to be part of the resolution to this issue. But also notice, though, that the apostles don't abdicate their specific leadership role by just having like an open-ended meeting where any and all ideas are just expressed and given the same weight. That's not what the apostles do. They, they, They show us a really incredible balance of leadership and humility at the same time. They're still leading by reminding the church here of what their specific role is and the importance of what they do right? What do they say? It is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Uh, I I read this, when I first encountered this, I read this as like an arrogant statement. (laughs) We're not doing that, right? But that's not what's going on here. This is more of a confession of a humble leader saying, gosh, I have been not doing what I should be doing because I'm trying to do everything. Again, I want to point out the language here. It actually suggests that the apostles, they're not saying that they're not willing to do this job. They're willing. They're willing. They've actually been doing this job probably up until now. The point is that they're now realizing that they're overwhelmed and that they can't do everything. They're saying, we can't keep doing this job at the expense of preaching and teaching. And so it's not about their unwillingness to serve. These guys are servant leaders. They're kind of the exemplars for us. It's about them understanding their specific role within the body and then empowering others to have a part in the leading and the flourishing of the church so that everyone is better served, including them, right? You want a healthy leader to do the teaching and the preaching. And they're saying, gosh, we have not done a good job of this. Even right here in this one verse, we see the dynamics of good leadership. One way to think of it is like this. Those who are called to lead the church spiritually, give oversight to the church, what we would call elders, they are called, as we see these apostles doing here, to be the ones to say, hey, we should do this. They take initiative. These leaders are taking the initiative, but they're doing it. If you notice the apostles, they're taking initiative, but they're not doing it in a way that's harsh or overbearing. They're leading, but they're not commanding. And so these apostles have a clear vision for the church. They have a clear vision of their calling to it. And here in this text, uh, that comes to the surface because they propose an idea for a resolution to this issue. And in doing this, they're instituting uh, the office of what we now call deacon. And we see the leadership authority in the church get spread to others who are qualified and who are called. And so just as we kind of wrap this up, I just want to lastly focus on who these seven were that were chosen and why the qualification of these seven really do matter. I'm going to do my best to pronounce these names again. Verse 3. Therefore, does the apostle speaking, therefore, brothers and sisters, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. So there you see the the give and take of their leadership. Hey, you go pick them and, and we'll appoint them. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said, what the apostles said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, if you've ever wondered, some of this is just a side note, but if you've ever wondered the roots of what we call ordination, this is part of it, the laying on of hands, of the leaders of the church saying this person is set apart. That's what we see here. So so first thing to notice back to our text is that the church and the apostles, they heard the need of the Hellenists, even through the murmuring. They didn't dismiss it because they were doing it the wrong way. And what you might not know is that all seven of these men have Greek names. And Luke even mentions that the last one is from Antioch. This is actually... Beautiful, I think this is really beautiful because it shows us how the body of Christ, the church, can be mindful of and create equity in its leadership so that even in its structure we can bear one another's burdens. This is really beautiful here. So the church creates a situation where even in this leadership model they are not causing anyone to be tempted into divisive and sinful patterns of thinking. If in this situation they just choose a bunch of Hebrew leaders, that can lead to then perpetuation of this division. But but what we end up with is Hellenist leaders. And so the Hellenists are now able to really feel that they've been heard, they've been cared for. But what I really want you to notice is that none of the qualifications that the apostles give here have anything to do with earthly things like ethnicity or culture. What are the qualifications? Wisdom. Wisdom good reputation, full of the Spirit. That's the qualifications for deacon, and that's basically the qualifications for elder, except elders have to be able to teach. So that we see three here, wisdom good, of good repute or good reputation and full of the Spirit. Now, I want to point this out here. These qualifications aren't something that only super Christians have, okay? These qualifications are the norm for each of us as believers. This is what your life should look like. You follow Jesus, you'll end up wise, have a good reputation, and you'll just live full of the Spirit. That's the norm for us. Notice here, there are no gifts listed. Nothing about these men is their giftedness, it's their character. And these are all normal Christian character attributes that Jesus, through his Spirit, through what we call sanctification, is working in each of us as we follow him. And so the point is that the community of faith, in order to be served by them, has to think of these, uh, these seven men in particular, as those who are trustworthy. They have to trust them. I knew it was going to get me at least once. Now, if you're like me, you might be thinking that these qualifications seem a little extreme for serving tables right they're they're passing out bread why do they have to be wise and of good repute but but I want to connect some dots for you here in terms of leadership in God's church if you remember back to acts chapter 4 we saw that the authority of the apostles was actually expressed in the distribution to those who are in need like that's con- those dots are connected so now the apostles act of delegating of handing over part of that authority to these seven points us to the apostles actually sharing their authority in the church. In in the alliance, we we might call this constituted authority, that those of us in the church have authority that comes down to us. It's not not our church, right? The apostles know that their authority in the church, it's not about them. It's not about them building their brand and building their platform. It's not their church, it's Jesus' church. They're under-shepherds. And this is still true today. This church and every other Christian church is Jesus' church. And hear me, we have no king but Jesus. You have no king but Jesus. You don't have a priest. You have direct access to Jesus. And yet, he gives us authority in the church as a good gift in order that we might all flourish together. And so the apostles here simply keep their focus on their specific role, right? the apostles are just staying in their lane. They keep their focus on their specific role and they empower others who they see as equals and partners in the gospel to do what they cannot do. So it's a it's a leadership idea. You should do what only you can do and empower other people to do the rest. But what's interesting here in Acts is also the reality that as we continue to hear specifically about Stephen, we're going to see that Luke doesn't actually record anything about Stephen distributing food, even though that's what he's called to here. Instead, he records uh, Stephen doing signs and wonders and proclaiming the gospel, which up until this point has only been done by the apostles. So a shift is starting to take place here in the church in Jerusalem. We're seeing the church grow and shift so that even the job of proclamation... Is being done not just by the 12 apostles, but eventually by all those who know and love Jesus, including you and me. And as we continue in Acts, you're going to begin to see that the church leadership and its its governing authority are going to shift from the apostles, as we see here, to then it's going to move to the apostles and the elders, and then it's going to move to just elders in each church. And so for us, this story in Acts is a way for us to understand the way that we can operate as a healthy local church. This is a sort of hinge point in this book where the focus now moves from the apostles specifically to a more general view where there are more leaders playing their part in the church. And so th- this is my challenge to you just as we wrap up. As you, as you continue to read along in Acts and as you listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit and you seek his presence in your life, I want to invite you to do so with an eye for how you might play a role in our specific expression of God's church. You have a part to play, and I can't play your part. We all have a piece to play. (laughs) We all have something that God is calling us to do in our church family so that we might flourish and be healthy and so that we can keep the focus on the mission of Jesus to make all things new in the world. Let let me pray. Jesus, first of all, thank you for letting my voice get through this moment this morning, and I just ask that you would bless uh, the rest of our time together as we celebrate the meal uh, and as we celebrate being brought together in a family. And I just pray, Holy Spirit, would you just give us ideas this week of ways and needs that we see in our church that we can, that we can begin to fulfill? And, and would you help those of us who are uh, asked to lead and teach here to do so with hearts that are soft and that hear the need even through maybe the, the wrong way to express it? Would you help us all to grow together in humility and in the likeness of you? And we ask this in your name, Jesus.